From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate in your cabin in the woods. Uh, John Kerner, author of Exploding the Truth. The JFK Jr. assassination stays with us. And this hour, your phone calls. Just a reminder to check out my podcasts, Conspiracy Unlimited. New episodes drop every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, three new episodes a week. And you can listen and subscribe at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. And then The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. New episodes drop every Wednesday. And this coming week, we'll take a look at Bob Marley versus the CIA. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, part of the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. And again, it's available on iTunes and Spotify and uh, the Westwood One app. Westwood One has their own app. You can get it there as well. Anywhere you get your favorite podcasts. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone and Conspiracy Unlimited. And incidentally, you can also access them through my website, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. And incidentally, we've overhauled the website, strangeplanet.ca. We've streamlined it, made it a lot easier to navigate, and it's uh, it's far more uh, mobile friendly. All right, let's get back to uh, John Kerner. And again, we'll take uh, questions and comments of this hour for John. Uh, were there, do we suspect or do you suspect or do you know whether there were earlier attempts perhaps now sort of in hindsight looking back other close calls that may have been an attempt to take john uh, kennedy jr out yeah there was this unusual incident that took place he switched up his aircraft about six months before he with a new one the pepper saratoga and that one had some strange instruments that had were kind of failing or not up to par so he didn't like it for some reason and he got rid of it so i don't know that what that was all about but that aircraft looked to be not up to speed so he got rid of it exchanged it for this new one so i don't know if that was sabotage if he knows something about it i'm not really sure but he was so meticulous that he didn't like that one and just kind of got rid of it so that might have been one thing that was unusual certainly Right. And so for George uh, Herbert Walker uh, Bush, I guess there were two two motives. One is to silence John F. Kennedy Jr. before he investigated his father's assassination. And then the other one was uh, because obviously George George W. Bush, the younger Bush, was was also running for president in 2000. So right. just two weeks before the assassination right? explosion, it was very unusual that for the the several days that all this was happening, where there were, the nation was tragically mourning that JF, JFK's you know Junior's death, George W. Bush was nowhere to be found. They couldn't find him for comments for several days. His press secretary said they, they didn't know where he was. It was, it was very strange, um, and it was just thinking about another point too. That a question earlier: Why was there this all of a sudden interest in getting involved in politics again. I think he, because he admired his father so much, it, it seemed like he wanted to serve his country. And it got to the point in his life where he was ready to do so. And his father in his 30s was doing the same thing. 
serving his country, and he felt an obligation to do the same thing. And if you look at the timing here, if JFK had Jr. had become president and elected president in 2004, which was his path, he would have been the same age as his father was on Inauguration Day in 1961. So they would both have been 43 years old. So I, I think the timing here is what was important to him, too. All right. Stephen in Massachusetts. Stephen, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, Richard. Hello, John. Right after the uh, the crash, I was watching uh, WBZ4, it's a local affiliate here, uh, report by David Robichaud. You know, he was a reporter. He was down, you know, in the area. He had an interview I don't know if it's the reporter from the Gazette. He had an interview right. with the photographer who witnessed the crash, and he said he saw a great light right before it. That was an interview with uh, reporter David Robichaud, WBZ4 News. Um, and also the, uh, another thing, uh, on Channel 5, WCVB would be the ABC affiliate. Uh, Chet Curtis, who was a news anchor, he himself, you know, well-known anchor, he's passed away. He himself was a private pilot, and he, when they were commenting, you know, they were doing, you know, a news coverage. He was apoplectic. He was a flyer himself. He couldn't understand how, you know, he could have been, could have been, like the reports were true, that John could have been, you know, flustered. He said he, he, he knew that, you know, he was a good pilot. He himself had flown. This is a Chet Curtis. And, you know, he was a well-known pilot. He couldn't understand it. It seemed like he was very uneasy. He didn't go around and say it, but he was just, obviously, the Kennedy is very popular. But if you want to get that footage, it was Chet Curtis. He and, and Natalie Jacobson were well-known, uh, you know, anchors at the ABC affiliate WCVB TV5. Chet Curtis, he's passed away. Um, but he was a pilot and, uh, I don't know if you, you, you'd want to check in on that if you, I don't know if you know that or not. Um, you can easily get the footage. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there. And also I'll add this. You may not know this. The, the Gaelic name or Druid name, ancient name of Kennedy, you know, I'm sure you know it means head wound. And obviously both of Kennedy, John and Robert were shot in the head and could have been, you know, John could have, he could have hurt his head in the, in the crash or whatever. Um, so that's kind of eerie. And um, Is that I'll true? The last that. name Kennedy means head wound in Gaelic? Yeah, you, you, you Wikipedia search. The a Gaelic name, the ancient tribal name, means Kennedy. Obviously, that's translated from the Gaelic or the ancient right. uh, Celtic. It means head wound or, or, you know, shot to the head, something like that. Um, you could easily find that with a um, a Wikipedia search. It'll come up, or you just do a Google the search of the Kennedy name. You know, original All right. origins. Some great and, points uh, in there, Stephen. Let's get John in here to to comment. I'm glad you brought that up about the Vineyard Gazette reporter. I spent an entire chapter talking about this witness. So there is this reporter from the Gazette that you just mentioned that was interviewed on the air, and the problem was they didn't give the reporter's name. So subsequent investigators called the Vineyard Gazette, and they said, we're reluctant to give out the person's name because they're an intern, they, 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 they just went off to college, 
So they're, they're, we're frightened for their safety, I think, for obvious reasons. So the information that we had was that they worked for the Gazette. They witnessed this explosion, and it was a male, and they worked just for that summer of 1999. So with that, with those, you know, facts, I, I wanted to go and look at the microfilm and see if I could nail down who this person would be. So if I could find a person, a male intern, that showed up just reporting in the summer and then stopped reporting when he got to September when he went back to school, that would have been the person. So I tried to get the microfilm through interlibrary loan from three different places in, in the area, and all three of them denied the microfilm request and wouldn't let me see the microfilm from the Vineyard Gazette. Finally, I got the National Archives to get the microfilm. So I got the microfilm, looked at it, looked at every single story from May until September for the Vineyard Gazette. And I did find the person, this one person, this intern that would have that showed up and then disappeared and stopped reporting when they would have went up back to school. So I didn't give the person's name in the book, but it does correspond to what the man was saying. It was his witness that worked for the Gazette and saw the explosion. Fascinating, fascinating. How many witnesses it, in all saw the explosion? Well, the three that we publicly know about, that talked about it, that were courageous enough to talk about it, were the supporter for the Gazette, then another member of the Kennedy family that was interviewed on the air, and this also, this third person I mentioned, Victor Probanik. Okay, he was, and still is, a lawyer near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he was there fishing that night, which he had done for several years. And I contacted him, too. I emailed him, and he said he'll get back to me in two weeks after his trial was over. So he, he said, contact him then, which I did. I contacted him again after two weeks. And I said, two weeks, you're up. Can we talk about what you saw that night? And like, no response. So, unfortunately, he perhaps got spooked out by my questioning. But we do know from accounts in the book, The Day John Died, and from the New York Post, that he witnessed this explosion, just like the reporter we just talked about and heard it as well. All right, uh, John, stay put. We'll take a time out, come back, take some more calls, questions, and comments for John Kerner, author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. John Kerner stays with us. John, how do we get a a copy of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination? Uh, Amazon.com. Kronos website has it, too, the publisher of the book. You also link it from my website, paranormalwalks.com. My other books are there, too, if you're interested in getting those as well. All right, let's say hi to Larry, who is in Toronto. Larry, good evening, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Yes, how are you? Very well, thank you. Yes, uh, the, only, the comment I'd like to make concerning this topic, aside from the fact that uh, you know John F. Kennedy Jr. was killed in an unusual manner, is the fact that he was cremated right away. Because... If you look at the history of the Kennedy family, number one, they're Roman Catholics. And I realize there's no prohibition against cremation. But the 
fact that he was cremated right away is strange because the entire Kennedy family, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy, Jacqueline Kennedy, President Kennedy, and Patrick Kennedy are all buried in the same more or less plot in Arlington. That's a very interesting point. And you know what I mean? Absolutely. And kind of a coincidence also that, that all three of them were cremated. Not only John Jr., but yeah. his wife, Carolyn Bessett, and, and his sister-in-law, uh, Lauren. Yes, exactly. Because it's interesting that Jacqueline Kennedy passed away not too long before uh, John, uh, John Jr. was killed. It wasn't that long. I'm thinking if he was uh, assassinated or taken out, perhaps they waited until after she died to do it. Because can you imagine just for if if he had died and she was still alive and they cremated, she would have been appalled. I think to think that her son's basically being cremated and his assets dumped in the Atlantic Ocean, where the rest of the family is buried in the family, uh, uh, you know, plot or whatever. Larry, that's an excellent point. Excellent point. John, do you want to weigh in on that? It really is. It's very suspicious. The bottom line is it's a way to cover up the evidence. If you don't have bodies, then you you can't make conclusions about what happened to the bodies. Because if you destroy the bodies and cremate them, then you can't prove what happened to the bodies. So you're making an excellent point. It's it's so obvious, yeah. Was James Baker in charge of all this? Yeah, James Becker was the one appointed, <laughs> and 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 again, he's the, he's a obviously from the Reagan administration. He was the Secretary of State, right? He was Secretary of State, and and he's from the Bush family, a good friend of the family. So he's the one appointed by the NTSB, by the FAA to head up the investigation. So from the very beginning, you have this inside man that's directing an official version of events. With the bodies, with this visual disorientation myth that we put forward, it's all coming from him, which I think makes it very suspicious as we're talking about why it's him. The Bush family has their inside man there, and the CIA has their inside man there, too, with James Baker. Yeah. Uh, Larry, thank you so much. Great questions, great uh, comments as well. I appreciate it. Uh, uh, Catherine is in London. Catherine, welcome hi. to The Conspiracy Show. Hi there. Hi. Hi. Um, first time calling in this Great. Um, Thank you. Great to have you aboard. (laughs) Thanks. Um, I've got a couple of questions, um, and I'm trying to remember where um, they're coming from because I've listened a lot to, like, Jim Fetzer, Jim Mars. They both talked about these subjects quite a bit. Um, But um, apparently there was a a seat missing in the plane, and from the way that the plane was found, it would have been very difficult for that seat to get loose on its own. Um, and that that seat was never recovered. Um, and I know that there was a, a theory put forward about um, the fact that he always flew with a flight instructor, that he still wasn't fully qualified, and he had a flight instructor with him. Where was this other person, if indeed there was this other person with them? Um, and, of course, the Bush connection, because I think the New American Century, um, that report, that conference was just, starting to um, be um, being brought up and with his magazine he would have been all over that kind of stuff um, so it's just really with the timing that that summertime of 99 I actually remember the day that it happened as well 
Right. Okay, so the missing seat, that's interesting. What do you know about the missing seat, John? Yeah, all these were myths put forward to take away JFK Jr.'s credibility as a as a pilot. He did not fly with a flight instructor. He didn't need to fly with one. As I mentioned before, he did this flight five times by himself at night with no flight instructor. As I said before, he also did this training with a hood on. He could easily fly this new autopilot. And this idea that there was a person, if there was a person in that plane that died with them, the family would have been notified about this. The flight instructor community in that area is very well known. His flight instructors, we can all name who they are. I all know all their names. So if there was a man that was flying with him that was dead, where is he? Where is his family? Yeah. Why have they not talked yeah. about it? It doesn't make any sense. That was put forward to, to show the public this myth that he was not a good pilot, that he didn't know what he was doing. So that's why it was put forward. And in fact, there was a possibility, yes, this man may have, have approached him before the flight took place, that to say well, he might have wanted to fly with him. And JFK Jr. may have said, no, he doesn't need a flight instructor. He might have trusted this man. He might have known who he was, because it was mentioned in the NTSB report that there was some person that approached him, but they never named who he was. And the media never investigates this, which would have been a great story, this person who would have cheated death by not getting on the plane with him. So the whole myth of this mysterious flight instructor makes completely no sense. It was only meant to put forward to, to say that he was some kind of bad pilot. And all his flight instructors said he was a meticulous pilot. He was he was did everything right. All right, thank you so much. Uh, great great uh, questions, Catherine. Four one six three six zero zero seven forty four one six three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. Any theories as to how uh, they got that that bomb on on the plane? Well, the air, good question, address this in the book too. The place where the plane took off from, Caulfield Air, uh, Airfield in New Jersey, that the airport, especially back at that time, had almost no security. So that's why they actually wanted to put aircraft there. The, the um, media, not the media, but celebrities like Bill Cosby had his aircraft there, JFK Jr. had the aircraft there. They wanted privacy. So this was a private airfield with no security, and it was kind of a place where you could just go, be by yourself, and it was, it was the kind of a place where you could easily get in there and get access to it. In fact, I was giving a speech about this a couple months ago, and a person in the crowd actually said he had been to that aircraft, that airfield, he, he, he vouched for what I was saying. He said, yeah, it's, it's crazy that you can just walk in and out. No one really cares what you're doing. So... It seems like it's the perfect place to get in there and put something on the aircraft because there's no one checks checks what you're doing. Amazing. Amazing. The Kennedy assassination, of course, the John F. Kennedy assassination has this long death list of witnesses and so forth. Is there a death list for the John F. Kennedy Jr. assassination? Are people starting to die mysteriously who saw things or who know things? Well, I mentioned the reporter for the Vineyard Gazette. The editor, right away, when people approached her to ask for this guy's name, she said, we don't feel comfortable giving out his name for his own safety. So they knew right away the information that he had was that explosive. So, and as I said, I, I found out the man's name. 
through the microfilm. I put his name in the book for his own safety. Okay, he's a young man. He, he that's what about twenty years ago. So he's probably you know in his in his he's probably almost forty years old now. So that person, whoever he is, wherever he is now, I I wish him the best because if ever his name gets out there, God knows what might not happen to him. I mentioned I talked to Victor Brannick over email. He said he'd get back to me. I emailed him three times, and he decided not to respond to my request. So he might be spooked, too. So I also suspect that there were more people that night that saw the explosion and chose not to talk about it because it was a very good night to be out on the beach. The weather was perfect. It was a nice summer night. There hadn't more than three people that saw the explosion, but three people did talk about it, and we give them credit for their courage. It's interesting that the time of year, it was a, it was three years earlier that the TWA 800 mm-hmm. uh, plane went down and many people, I'm not sure how many witnesses uh, saw the, um, what it looked to be a missile being fired right. from the ground, striking the plane. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that was sort of roughly in the same area. I think that was over, over Long Island, right. uh, where that plane went down. Uh, but the timing is interesting. Do you think there's any connection there? I think it, the connection is that you want to have a place where it's not over land. Because if you have an explosion over the land, there's more witnesses and more people can gather things from their homes, from the ground. But if it's over the, the sea, if it's over water, then it can be sealed off by the Navy and the CIA. And they can take things under more control then. So the timing is essential here that the explosion takes place for both of these right over the water where it can be easily controlled with, with in this case, 14 nautical miles rather than over the ground. They need to wait till they're over the, over the sea in both cases for those particular situations and to come to the conclusion where they're both explosions and then you have them easily controlled over water. All right, Augie is in New York, and he um, he's on the line. Augie, go ahead. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Thank you, Richard. Uh, I just wanted to ask a question. Earlier in the program, when you introduced the author, uh, he mentioned that he had contracted a disease that was specific to Southeast Asia. Uh, I'm wondering if he has any clue as to how he contracted that disease and also what did he ever get a, the name of the particular disease that almost took his life? Right. So this is summer of 2012, I guess it was, and I was in Buffalo General Hospital. And the doctors that summer were fighting for my life, and it was some kind of flesh-eating disease. It was a, I was my lungs were filling up with fluid and my face was filling up with fluid. I had to have several surgeries to drain fluid from my body. My muscles were contracting. I lost 45 pounds. And the closest thing that they could tell me is that you have something that looks like it is from Southeast Asia. Have you ever been to Southeast Asia? And I said, I never, I didn't even have a passport. I've never been to Southeast Asia. Wow. So I said, whatever you have only is native to there. So we have no idea how you got it. It looks like you've been poisoned somehow. And at that point in my life, I was completely healthy. Obviously, I'm a public figure. I give speeches. I give tours. I give lectures. I'm out in the public a lot. So it's it's easily, I can be, I'm accessible. So, so 
somehow I contracted this illness, and they said, you should be dead. There's no reason you should be alive. Somehow you've survived. And my family noted that there were several times where there were these unmarked black helicopters that were buzzing my house while I was in the hospital. So it was it was a bizarre summer when this happened, and I don't understand how I survived, but I, I somehow did. Uh, absolutely incredible. Uh, I, I thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Augie, thank you. Great to hear from you. There's Augie in New York. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing is the, the Clintons, um, certainly Bill Clinton and George, um, George W. have been quite friendly. Uh, and, and George uh, Sr., before he was confined to a wheelchair when he wasn't in such frail health, they would, they would, um, uh, be involved in joint ventures, things like hurricane relief and so forth. Uh, what do you suppose changed? I mean, if the Clintons were close to the Kennedys, surely the Clintons must have suspected something. Well, I, yeah, I think this happens years later. I mean, this is a recent phenomenon with Bill and, and George W. Bush. I think it's simple because of one reason. The presidency is a very exclusive boys club, I guess you could say. And they take care of each other. When they're ex-presidents, they they tend to go to events together. They, they become friends almost all the time. They want to show themselves as statesmen. So this happens quite a bit. Um, Eisenhower became friends with Truman. He often would talk to JFK during the missile crisis. Jimmy Carter has become friends with the Bush family, too. So after these men leave the presidency, they kind of put their differences aside and want to show themselves for history's sake, despite what they might feel personally, to show the world that they're great leaders, they're statesmen, they can cross party lines, and have history write them up as good, honorable men, when in fact they might have, who knows, in their private lives, different feelings about these people. Right. All right. We'll um, we'll head into a break here, come back. Melanie in Toronto wants to know about a possible 9-11 connection. We'll get to her call in just a few moments. John Kerner, the author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. assassination. More awaits on the other side, right here on The Conspiracy Show. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with John Kerner, the author of Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. Assassination. Why didn't other members of the Kennedy family uh, speak up after uh, his death and at least raise some of these questions? You know, why were they, why they, why did they take so long to, to recover the bodies? Uh, why such a large debris field? Why weren't we allowed to, you know, to see the body sooner, et cetera, et cetera? Why weren't the Kennedys speaking out? Well, Teddy Kennedy was, um, he was actually quite angry about what was going on. He was on the phone with President Clinton for almost the entire two days when they wouldn't let anyone in. So he was asking a lot of questions and quite angry about this. So we, 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 we can at least give him some credit that we know for a fact that he was, local media was reporting that he was really angry and upset about what was going on, trying to get information from President Clinton. 
and even President Clinton would know what was going on because the Navy and the agency had sealed off the area to anyone. It was like they're this rogue government doing their own thing. So the Kennedy family, with this patriarch, Teddy Kennedy, was quite upset that they were not allowed in to handle this situation. Now, I have hope and faith that because, obviously, this is relatively, you know, recent 20 years, obviously, a long time, but there's still many people in the family that still could raise questions. Let's think, for example, about our Robert Kennedy's son, RFK Jr. We've, we know for a fact, we talked about this on the air, that he recently visited Sirhan Sirhan, and he's yes. come to the conclusion that that, of course, was a conspiracy. So there's a member of the family there we could point to that might have the courage to look at this situation, too. Maybe he could be called upon to have that same courage and have that sense of um, open-mindedness about this. Let's, let's hope he can have that, that approach, too. Did you reach out to any members of the Kennedy family? No, I, I didn't reach out to any of them. I felt like I didn't really need to. I want to be respectful of them and... I feel like if they want to approach me, if they want to have me investigate with them, I'd be more than willing to help them. I'm doing this for them and for the truth. I feel like they've been the target too much of this agency, and it it needs to stop. And this has been a pattern going on since the 1960s, and this family has suffered way too much. And it just, the truth needs to come out, and it, it needs to stop. Uh, Melanie is in Toronto. Melanie, good evening, good morning, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Good evening. I was going to go to bed early, but you guys are keeping me awake. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, is there a possibility this could be tied into the 9-11 pre- uh, could have been a pre uh, preemptive to to test out the waters as to how far they could go, and also another question: He had an um, cast, I believe, on his leg. Was he on any medication? And also, and one more question: Who ordered the cremation? And what about his wife? Was she also cremated? Or and the sister? And who ordered the cremations? And um, basically, could it be connected maybe to? Uh, the uh, 9-11 pre. I mean, at that time, we know that one of the guys was in Egypt. The um, the main guy in Egypt who ordered the uh, 9-11 was testing and bombing, uh, placing bombs or whatever at the World Trade Center. So could he have had something to do with it? Because we know that the Nazis had their submarines in the Second World War all the way up to almost New York, right? So could there be a possibility it could have been done from... Uh, from the water, it could have been just a, a test. Well, that's an interesting point. Why do we assume it was a bomb on board the plane? Why not um, a missile? Uh, although too, no, yeah. right? Okay, great questions, Melanie. Um, okay, so I'm not going to go to bed till your show's over. I'm sorry. All right, go ahead, uh, John. Did you want? Yeah. Okay. Okay. She said she yeah, go ahead. So the show's over. So we just, we just have her listening. That's pretty good. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah, you could have a surface-to-air missile. I mean, that the, the the interesting point is that all three of them, the witnesses that we know, they hear and see the same thing. They they see an explosion, this flash of light accompanied by an explosion. So flash of light explosion. So could there have been a missile that caused that? Certainly. I think that's a possibility. So they all are consistent with their reports. So that, that's interesting. 
Or could there have been a collision with perhaps uh, uh, a drone? That's possible, too. I look at that possibility in the book. The, there is this thing on the Predator drone the agency had that they could mount a missile on or a bomb. That's also possible, too. She also mentioned this connection to 9-11. Interesting. The air field where JFK Jr. took off from is the same airfield where pilots that train for 9-11 attacks train from. So those terrorists were working out of that aircraft facility, doing training, eventually did attack the World Trade Center at 9-11. So that was a couple of years, uh, one year later, that was the same airfield that that aircraft take off, took off from. As I mentioned, there's very lax security there. So there is a connection that we can make with that that she's mentioning. Interesting. That is fascinating. All right, last call of the phones, 416-360-0740. That's the greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740. And toll free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740, 1-866-740-4740. And uh, we're just about ready to head into another break here. Our last segment, one last segment awaits. Um are you Richard? She mentioned oh, yes. the, about her, his leg. We can just mention it here. The cast. So he had the cast yes. taken off the, the day before. No, the medication had stopped. There were, the cast was taken off Thursday morning. Went to the doctors, and then he had the entire Thursday to do stuff. He worked out. Went to a Yankees game. He had lunch with his wife. So he had a whole day to test the leg. So if anything was wrong, he would have went back to the doctors the following morning. He did not do that. He had all Friday to do the same. He worked out again. He walked into a convenience store near the airfield, and the store manager and the clerk, whatever, he asked him, how's the leg doing? And he said, it's feeling great. Nothing wrong with it. Feeling good. So he had two days to have the leg tested, a month to heal. Leg was fine. And we also know, as we said, an hour of flight with no incident. So that showed the leg was easily used during the flight hour. So... Leg All right, there. Basically. John, we've got to take a time out here. We'll come back and finish up. John Kerner, Exploding the Truth, the JFK Jr. assassination, right here on The Conspiracy Show. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, uh, last call to the phones for John Kerner. I was just reading a, a New York Times article from July 22nd, 1999, talking about the recovery of the bodies. Now get this, the remains were located at 2.30 a.m. on July 22nd, 2.30 in the morning, by an underwater camera checking objects detected by sonar. Now get this, the bodies were raised about 4.30 p.m., 14 hours to raise the bodies? What's going on there, John? <laughs> That's very suspicious, Richard. And you have all that time to rework the bodies to make it look like there wasn't an explosion. So you have, again, no one allowed in there except the CIA and the Navy. So the agency is very skilled at body manipulation. Just look at what they did to President Kennedy's body to make it look like in the autopsy photographs that he was not shot in the back of the head, that there was a, there was not a frontal wound in the, and there was not a front wound and an exit wound in the back. They made it look like the back of the head was covered up. So obviously there was enough time there for them to rework the bodies, make it look like it was not an explosion, 
an accident. All right, let's say hi to Ed in London, Ontario. Ed, good morning. Welcome to the Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with John Kerner. Thank you. I'd like to make a couple of comments on a few things that have been said. Uh, first of all, I think the coastline along there isn't that well populated. That would be very well lit. So it would be hard to be disoriented. Uh, you could see the coastline from uh, that distance and that height easily. Interesting point. That's a second comment on the rudder pedals. I'm surprised they haven't had a pilot call in. The rudder pedals, uh, of course, work your rudder for left and right. They also work your ailerons for bank and turn, and you, uh, on the older aircraft, work the brakes. All right, so he would have been using that foot on the rudder pedals and the brakes. Uh, but, uh, uh, John, did you want to add anything further to that? Yeah, we can point out that even if he was having trouble with that, he'd use autopilot. And we also can point out that he, this is such a key thing. He takes off with no incidents. Everything's fine. He flies for one hour with no incidents. So if he had any trouble with his, you know, his leg or the aircraft, he would have said so at 9.39 p.m. when he calls into the Invented Airport to say he's on approach to land. He made no distress call. So obviously this indicates that the aircraft was fine, and he was fine, and the weather was fine, too. Just a couple more points, if you don't mind. Please go ahead, Ed. Sounds yes. like a typical low-tech World War II bomb where it arms on the way up and explodes on the way down. It's, uh, it's uh, triggered by barometric pressure. That's a very low-tech, uh, old-school old, old bomb, <laughs> possibly. And, and the last point I'd like to make, please, is that the 14-mile debris field is because uh, you're talking about floating debris, which are uh, wheels with tires, suitcases, seat backs, seat cushions. They, uh, you know, they will go for miles if there's a wind or a, or a current, but uh, the aircraft parts certainly wouldn't be spread over 14 miles unless it with a Challenger uh, spacecraft right. explosion or something. At that low altitude, they'd have a smaller debris field than 14 miles. Interesting point. So we should clarify. Are we talking about a debris field found on the bottom of the ocean of, of parts, or are we talking about floating debris, which, if it drifts, as Ed points out, that wouldn't be unusual? No, what we're talking about what happens here is... According to, to, to Jim Mars, using his investigation, he says that if this was an accident, you'd have everything in one spot. You'd have the bodies, the luggage, the aircraft, everything in one area at the bottom of the ocean. It would fall right into the ground, everything at the bottom of the ocean together because it would, there'd be no explosion. Then the aircraft wouldn't break apart in the air. It'd go all down into the ocean and nothing would happen other than that. You put everything in the bottom of the ocean, bodies, everything, the aircraft intact, crushed together as one. That's not what took place here. You had over a large area, even on land, not drifting onto land, but on land, you found things where there are sneakers, luggage, wheels, all kinds of things, not drifted up, but on the land itself, as if it flew several miles. So that's different than what you're saying there. That indicates an explosion of breach of the aircraft, something quite different. Ed, thanks. Great questions. Great comments. Um, it's possible then that that someone found a piece of the air, aircraft if, if it blew up um, in the air 
and um, you know parts fell from the sky. It's it's possible that that there were pieces of the aircraft on land, small pieces. I mean, were were um, naval people searching the land? Were there were they combing the land to, to make sure that all the evidence was was cleaned up? Uh, were yeah, were yeah. were people were, were people questioned and asked? Did you find anything? Right, absolutely. And this is the thing, I think, why I mention this has to happen over the water. Because if you have the aircraft, if the bomb goes off over land, or if the missile is sent to the aircraft over land, that's much more problematic. Because then you have people's homes, you have to, you know, find debris there, there's no more witnesses. But if it explodes over the water, then you can have the Navy go in, and the agency go in and clean up the area and make it look like an accident. But one problem they had is because the explosion was so violent, as I said, there were things that they did find on the land very far north that people did find, including the local sheriff. So that was one thing that happened. We did find some people that were discovering things, like a sneaker, as I mentioned, a wheel, luggage, those sort of things. But the rest of it, as you said, was cleaned up by the Navy, make it look like an accident. Of course, when something like this happens and we we uh, accuse somebody of a cover-up or a conspiracy, the the critics, the skeptics um, have it's it's a, a legitimate question. Is think about how many people would have to be involved to cover something like this up? You have the the the, the Navy divers, you have the uh, the Coast Guard, you have uh, the um, the medical examiner, the people performing the autopsy, the people that were there present. Uh, when the bodies were uh, recovered, and so on and so forth. How do you keep a lid on something like that? Well, I'm not going to try to answer that question. I'm just going to point to what, what I found out, the facts. The fact is that 2.15 a.m., uh, the Navy said that they had found the Pepper Saratoga Rescue Beacon. This reported by ABC News and NBC News. And then they said on the air that, no, it was a downed Navy military aircraft in that same spot. So at that point in time, you have to conclude one of two things. They're lying about something. Either They either did find the Pepper of Saratoga or one of their aircraft was crashing there at that same spot. So that alone proves that they're lying. And because they're lying about that, what else are they lying about? And you can take it from there. That's the biggest proof I have of conspiracy. Because after that, you have to find out where was the aircraft, who died in the crash, where are the family, did they, were they notified? If that's not the case, then they did find the Pepper of Saratoga and lied about it for some reason to cover up the area. So that one fact alone proves a conspiracy, and you go from there. Your publisher, were they at all hesitant about publishing this book? Not at all. I mean, they had been so great about this. I mean, they... They published the other book I wrote about the Kennedy family that we, you know, talked about extensively, the drug trade in Laos, and they've always been very supportive of this. Uh, they did no editing of the manuscript other than just basically proofreading it. So it's it's um, to their credit that they've been behind me the whole way. And um, again, let me. I wanted to ask you about whether you've had any suspicious activity around you since this book is now out 
um, because, as you mentioned earlier, on the eve of the publication of your first book on JFK, uh, you were, it sounds like, you were poisoned. Um, anything suspicious happened to you since you, you, you've published this book? Uh, I could tell you about it off the air if you want, Richard, but... Um yeah, something. No, nope. I, I respect that. I don't want to. Off the air. Yeah, something. Something did happen. Yeah, it's. Um, uh, we could talk about it off the air if you'd like. Yes. Absolutely. No, we. I'd, I'd like to hear it, but no, I don't want you to. Uh, I don't want to put you in a spot here. Um. And so, did that? Did that incident lead to your decision that this may likely be your last book? I don't know, Richard. I mean, the other books I've written, it just seems like. I don't know. I, I, it seems like I tried to, to pu- publish these books and write these books, not publish, but write these books. And, and people just I hope they just can look at my, them from my perspective. I spend so many years researching them. I try my best to lay them out logically with all the facts covered. And it just seems like there's just so much resistance to this. I sometimes get discouraged. So I don't know. I mean, I hope I can write again. Um, I, 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 if I, if, Hope I can at some point. I just I get I get discouraged and people don't have the same perspective as I do. I just people can be open minded about things and hopefully they will. Who's who's been resisting you? Who's resisting you? I mean, have there been have there been reviews written or debunkers coming after you? Well, I mean, just anecdotally. I mean, when I've I've been a couple of speeches about the book and locally and. I just tried to, when people are making observations, it's hard to go back at them and explain what they're talking about. It's not factually based in evidence. I, I'm trying to come back at them with facts and evidence. They just don't understand that just because it's a conspiracy doesn't mean that it's some wild theory. I'm trying to write things from the perspective of what I see from facts, evidence, and research, not from, you know, some kind of wild conspiracy theory that people might just label as being some from some nutcase. Well, that's what makes this book so dangerous, and perhaps makes you so dangerous, uh, John. Um, thank you so much. Listen, hey, maybe, maybe someone like someone like Oliver Stone will. Uh, We'll um, take a look at this book and decide to turn this into a movie, uh, like he did with uh, with JFK. Wouldn't that be it something? Deserves, it deserves um, it deserves notoriety. I, I wish people would would read the book with an open mind. That's all I ask. Just read the book with an open mind. That's all. Uh, give us the details on where we can get a copy of Exploding the Truth: The JFK Jr. Assassination. It's at Amazon.com Canada, and Kronos has it too, and my website has it as well. All right, folks, go out and support John Kerner. And I will speak to you on Coast to Coast later this month, my friend. That would be wonderful, Richard. Thank you so much for tonight. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. All right, thanks to uh, Ian back in the studio, Ryan in his lair in East York, and uh, Albert, God bless you wherever you are. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.